just a few moments, I'm going to read you some verses from the New Testament letter that Paul wrote to the church at Philippi. But as you're here this morning, I hope that you have found some reason in the past few days to be thankful. I hope that you have uh, found your God to be faithful to you. I hope that you have understood more and more about the depth of his love. Um, if you've spent any time with family over the last couple days, I'm sure that it's been a mixture of a lot of fun, but also perhaps some uneasiness. Uh, dealing with family can always be challenging in many levels, albeit perhaps some fun mixed in there. But when we gather for worship, we are reminded that there is a big truth that encompasses all of our lives. Whether we come in this morning and we're super thankful, or whether we gather here this morning and we're maybe frustrated or disappointed or sad, there is a truth that encompasses everything. And that truth is that Jesus is King and that we have life in him. Hear this. God has highly exalted Christ and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name, at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I'd love to look with you this morning in the Gospel of John, chapter 20. If you have a copy of the scriptures, you can certainly turn there. Otherwise, the words I'm going to read are in your bulletin and should be on the screen behind me. Um, I'm just going to read two verses to you this morning. I hope that they're somewhat familiar to you after we've heard them, uh, read them over and over this past year together. So listen to this, John 20, 30 and 31, this is God's word for you, for me, for us. We can bank all that we are on what I'm about to read you. Listen to this. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Would you pray with me? Oh Lord, you are a good God. You love your people. You indeed are the creator of life, the giver of life. You are even the God of grace that gives eternal life. So we pray that as we look at these verses together this morning, that you would stir us up, that we would be astonished with the life that we have in Christ, that your spirit would work in us, that we might realize that we have everything in Christ. So Lord, help us, help us to be found in Christ afresh, for we pray in his name, amen. By way of introduction this morning, I wanted to let you know that, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm choking up this morning. Um, we're, we are next week, this is the last sermon we're going to do in John. So next week and for the rest of the month, our Advent series is going to be through the book of Ruth. So if you've never read that book in the Old Testament, it's just a small, small four-chapter book. It's an amazing story that ties us into the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So for the rest of, the, of this calendar year, we're going to be looking at the book of Ruth together. And then in the new year, in 2020, this is what we're going to do. We are going to, my plan is anyway, God has a way of changing these things, but this is what we've laid out. We're going to spend next year in the Bible, like the whole thing. So I'm not going to cover every single book of the Bible, 
Like I'm not going to cover a gospel account because we spent this year in the gospel of John. But almost every, we're going to cover almost every book of the Bible next year. And we're going to see the storyline of the scriptures. It is going to be uh, largely chronological. So you can understand how things fit in the story of reality and the story of redemption. So you can understand the books of the Bible and how they fit together. We're going to anchor that whole series. We're going to do about four series and, excuse me, four sermons in Genesis. I think five in Acts and probably five in Revelation. And then we're going to jump through the other books of the Bible. Excuse me. I don't know what's going on. Wasn't expecting that. Um, So we're going to cover the whole Bible next year and think through the storyline of the Bible and what the story of the Bible is itself. Sound good? Well, I guess it's not. I mean, you could say no. Hopefully you are looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to going through that with you, and I hope we will enjoy that together. Um, This morning what I want to do is recap the Gospel of John. Uh, Outside of the summer months, we've been in this book the whole year, and that's why we're kind of ending where we started with these couple verses at the end of chapter 20. And so what I would love, I mean, as a pastor, what I want for my people, what I want for you is that you know the Bible and you know the books of the Bible better after we finish working our way through them. So I would love nothing more than for you to feel like you have learned something about the gospel of John this year. And that as you go back and read the book, you might think, oh, yeah, this all fits together. There's a reason why John wrote the things that he did and why he left some out. So what I want to do this morning is this. I want to summarize John's gospel. I'm going to try to do that very quickly. And then I want to give you three big takeaways for the whole year. Make sense? And then we're going to land on these verses that I just read for you today. In particular, this phrase that we would have life in his name. Make sense? So summary of John's gospel, real quick, three big takeaways, and then we're going to land on having life in his name. Ready to go? Does this seem dark in here a little bit? More than normal? Okay, I felt that too. I don't know. What's, anyway, sorry about that. I'll try to keep you awake, but you know, part of my job is helping you ease and be relaxed and All right, let's dive in. Let's think about John's gospel. Let's summarize John's gospel together. And let's start with this obvious place, the verses I just read. Now, I'm going to explain them at the end, but let's just start right here. When you look at those verses in John 20, 30, and 31, John is telling you, he's telling me why he wrote his gospel. There are lots of other things that he could have written. There are many other things that Jesus did. But John decided to write these accounts, these stories, so that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing, you know the phrase, we might have life in his name. So it means that whenever we read the Gospel of John, we ought to be thinking about life in Jesus. We don't have to guess about what John's purpose is. We can even read this book and realize, oh, it all fits together. So if we're studying part of the Gospel of John and it doesn't fit into this idea, whoa, I'm now I'm getting microwaved, you know, I want to be, yeah. So we can read this whole book and realize that it's about life in Jesus. 2031 tells us the purpose of why John wrote everything, all right? Passage number two to understand and summarize John. If you have a copy of the scriptures, look back at chapter 11, verse 54. This is a dividing line in John's Gospel. In verse 53 of John chapter 11, it says that from this time forward, 
they consented and planned on how to put Jesus to death. That's how verse 53 ends in John chapter 11. And right after that in verse 54, it says, from this time forward, this is, a, this is Dave's paraphrase, from this time forward, Jesus no longer walked openly in public, but he went to Ephraim and stayed and, and, and taught his disciples, and he was with them. So the dividing line of John's gospel is that there was a public aspect to the ministry of Christ, and then there was a more intimate or private with Jesus and his disciples, Divide, excuse me, dividing line of the book. Third key reference to understand John's gospel is chapter 1. This is the introduction to John's gospel, and it is extraordinary. The first verses of John's gospel, they give us the deepest and the widest vantage point that you could possibly imagine. Those verses that if you've been in church for any length of time, you would have memorized them. The ones that talk about how in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The beginning of John's gospel takes us all the way back before creation. There's the widest possible vantage point and the deepest possible vantage point from which to understand reality. Because what John gives us in those first verses is not only the message from eternity, but also he tells us this is the message of grace. Now, let me try to fill this in. So, the purpose, John 20, 30, 31. Um, the dividing line, chapter 11, verse 54. Um, we can't forget about the introduction because of it setting the stage for everything that follows. But let me fill that in for you real quick. You all with me? We good? All right. Chapters 2 through 11 are about encounters that Jesus has with people. Encounters with Jesus, 2 through 11. 12 through 21 are all about, um, let's see, they are, those chapters are covering seven days in the life of Christ. Chapters 13 through 17 are giving you one 24-hour period. Chapter 18, the end of 18, but really we'll put it together, 18, 19, crucifixion, 20 and 21, resurrection. That's John's gospel. That's the whole thing. You got it? So if I give you a written test, you're going to be okay. No, I'm just kidding. But I hope that helps you understand this gospel more. Hope that that just quick summary anchors down some verses and chapters and concepts. All right, that's the summary. That was quick. That was less than six minutes. All right, let's go into the takeaways. You ready? We've got three big takeaways. And we're going to anchor them in to chapter 1, 2 through 11, 12 through 21. So here we go. Here's the first big takeaway. It coincides with chapter 1. Life with Jesus starts with God's commitment to us. Theme for the year, life with Jesus. So let's start with chapter 1. Life with Jesus starts with God's commitment to us. Now let's think about chapter 1 briefly, but hopefully compellingly. Remember that chapter 1 goes all the way back to eternity. I've already said that. All the way back prior to creation. And then moves into time. And then tells us that God took on human form. That eternity 
came into what is temporal, that what is infinite took on something that's finite. Beloved, don't ever be bored by these truths. Don't ever forget that life with Jesus starts with God's commitment to us. That God came to earth. The divine being took on humanity in the flesh and dwelt among us. And his message was not only the message of grace, but let's make that crystal clear. John saw Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. The message of grace is that Jesus came to this earth to deal with the brokenness, the darkness, the coldness, the sin. Don't ever be bored with that. It is extraordinary that we gather to worship. It is extraordinary that we actually believe in something that is supernatural. And if we ever lose that, if we ever lose our astonishment about the infinite taking on something that's finite, if we ever lose our grasp and grip on what is eternal comes into the temporary, if we ever lose our sense of astonishment with that, we have lost our faith. And if you have never thought about Christianity and think, you believe that God took on human form? Yes, we do. It is supernatural. It is extraordinary that we believe this. As a matter of fact, we would go so far as to say that life with Jesus starts with God's commitment to us or we have nothing. Let me tell you a little bit about that since we're thinking about it. Life with Jesus starts with God's commitment to us. What that means is if God took on human form, if God came to our earth, what that means is this. You don't have to try to find God. What it means is that you don't have to try to work your way to him. He came to you. He came to me. He came to our world. This is the message of Christianity. This is the heart of what it means to understand what life with Jesus is. God is way more committed to us than we ever are to him. That's what baptism shows you. God is the one that's pursuing us. God is the one whose message is of grace. God is the one who's more committed to our children than we ever could imagine. God is more committed to us than we could ever be committed to him. It's what the Lord's Supper pictures for you, that God is this committed, that Jesus would come and die and give us this meal so that we can take it in and remember this. And it's not just simply intellectually remembering. It's that we can live into what has happened with Christ, knowing that he's going to return that Jesus taking away the sin of the world, he actually means it, literally. The time is coming in which sin will be no more. Let that sink in. Life with Jesus starts with God's commitment to us, and he is far more committed to us than we will ever be to him. That's the first big takeaway. Here's the second one. Life with Jesus 
means that he knows everything we have ever done. Life with Jesus means that he knows everything that we have ever done. Just please take that in. It means he knows all of your thoughts. He knows everything in your past. He knows everything in your present. He knows all of your motives for everything. It means you can't hide a single thought from him, a single motive from him, a single action of your life. I can't hide a single thing from Jesus, not one. It means he knows everything that I have ever done. He knows everything about me. And when you read chapters 2 through 11, because that's where this truth is coming from, it means when you go back and read those chapters 2 through 11, you're going to realize afresh how Jesus deals with people like us. And we talked about this earlier in the year. We looked at how Jesus deals with what we'll call good people and how Jesus deals with broken people. When we say Jesus knows everything we've ever done, we're crying, I'm trying to communicate how he relates to us and how he comes to us. So let's think about how Jesus relates to, we'll call it good people. This is, of course, typified in chapter 3 where Jesus deals with Nicodemus, but it happens in chapter 6, it happens in chapter 7, it happens in, in chapter 10, happens over and over and over. You see, good people are moral people. Good people are concerned um, with, you know, going to church and being religious. You know, they're people like us. They're people that are serious about God. They're serious about God's people. They're churchy people. That's who Nicodemus was. That's who the Pharisees were. That's over and over throughout this, these chapters and other gospel accounts. This is how Jesus deals with churchy people. Remember the people that are very religious? They're the, they're the kind of people, or should say, I should really make this more personal. We are the kind of people that think that we can make ourselves Christians, or we can make ourselves better Christians. It's exactly what went on with Nicodemus. It goes on with us all the time. And usually, good people, moral people, churchy people, usually, usually, we're, usually we present in this way. We're very responsible we are very involved in many good activities. We have a high respect for the Bible. We have a lot of good qualities. But at the end of the day, when you get down to the core of what's really going on in our hearts, good people, moral people, churchy people, religious people, we always think that coming to Jesus is really a spiritual merger and acquisition. That we're really just adding Jesus to our lives. We don't really think about life with Jesus as being born. You know, a spiritual birth. When Jesus is talking to us, he tries to get us to understand, no, life with coming, beginning a relationship with me is actually a spiritual birth. You know, the birth that you didn't plan. A birth that you didn't make happen and can't make happen. Someone births you. They work to bring you into the world. 
That's what Jesus tells churchy people, religious people, moral people, because we so often think about relationship with Jesus is nothing more and just that it's just a spiritual merger and acquisition. It's as if Jesus has to tell us over and over and over again, look, you have all kinds of good qualities. You're responsible, you're respectful, you love the church, you respect the Bible. You've got all these good things, but you don't have Jesus. Jesus would say, but you don't have me. Nicodemus had all of these things. He was responsible. He had high review, of, uh, high opinion of God's word, but he didn't have Jesus. Maybe to say it another way, when Jesus comes to people who are good people, moral people, religious, oftentimes he has to communicate to us over and over and over how we can be saved before we're actually saved. Because we're so committed to ourselves that we actually have to be stopped in our tracks and we have to become convinced that we can't save ourselves and we can't make ourselves better Christian people, better followers of Jesus. We actually have to get the truth deep down into us of how someone begins a relationship with Christ before we actually have a relationship with Christ. And beloved, that's the message Jesus is continuing to teach us over and over and over and over again. He's going to continue to expose all of our righteousness and self-righteousness and thinking that we're the ones that did this and we're the ones that make this happen. It's what Jesus does to Nicodemus and he does it to us over and over and over. Faith is an evidence. Faith is not the cause of being born spiritually. Faith is the evidence that we have been born spiritually speaking. Well, Jesus deals not only with churchy people like us, but he also deals with broken people like us. You know, the people that know deep, deep down that they're not enough, people that live their lives oftentimes uh, exclusively out of fear and shame, people that know that they've done things that are wrong, that they feel completely inadequate for life. By the way, have you ever had the privilege of talking with someone who feels like this? Have you ever talked with someone who knows deep down that they are not enough? That feels so broken and so beaten down? Have you ever had the privilege of talking to them? Have you ever had the privilege of talking to someone like this? The one, the, this is the kind of person that thinks, you know what, Jesus could never love someone like me. Have you ever had the privilege of talking to someone who thinks that? Who thinks that Jesus could never love them? Jesus gets to talk to people like that. Jesus shows us that oftentimes those that feel their brokenness so deeply, Jesus works a little bit different with those folks, with those who have experienced life in that way. Jesus is convincing them that they can be saved before they actually are. Because their disposition is so, they're so self-aware about how, how inadequate they are that they just don't think Jesus could ever love them. And Jesus says, oh no, I can. I do. 
And that is so freeing because it lifts that burden off of their back. Have you been there before? Have you known things in your life in which you knew that you were completely inadequate and someone had to convince you over and over and over, oh no, God does love you. And when that truth began to sink down in, that burden of shame and guilt just started to get lighter and lighter. And perhaps you've even known things in your life, the weights that you've carried around, perhaps you've even known times in which God has just, God has just taken it off of you completely. So you stop thinking about how inadequate you are. You start realizing how adequate Jesus is for you and how much he cares. You see, those that are broken need to hear over and over again that no one is so bad that they're beyond the reach of God's grace. This was the woman at the well. This was others throughout those chapters 2 through 11. Those who were blind those whose son was dying, those who were crippled, they were so convinced in their minds that God could never love them. And Jesus knelt down, asked them questions, met them at the well, and said, oh, no, I do. He does. You see, Jesus doesn't have a canned approach on how he meets with people. He doesn't have a one-size-fits-all. Jesus seems to be incredibly adept when you go back and read through the Gospels, and perhaps you might remember some of these things that we're talking about. Jesus is incredibly adept, adept at keeping grace front and center in every conversation, which means to the religious person who are moral and, and churchy, it is incredibly offensive, the message of grace. And to those that are broken and and they're living their lives out of shame and, and knowing they're not enough, that message of grace is absolutely freeing. And Jesus is able to keep grace front and center all the time. You read the gospel accounts and it doesn't, Jesus doesn't ever seem very concerned about people making decisions. He seems far more concerned about meeting with people, getting to know people, and giving them space, allowing people like us to wrestle with and dream about what does it mean to have life with him? Is this true that I am not beyond the reach of grace? Is this true? What could my life look like if I had Jesus in it? What could my life be like if, if, if Jesus loves me And meets me where I am. What could my life look like if I understood grace and I didn't think that my life and my relationship with God started with me and is perfected by me? What could my life look like if I actually believed that someone had to spiritually cause me to be born? How could my life look different? What would my life be like if I lived by grace and not by my performance? If I live by grace and not by a self-righteousness that I really, at the end of the day, am banking on my own life and what I do with it. You see, if you've been taught that you are in ultimate control of your life, if you've been taught that you are in ultimate control of your relationship with God, and this message of grace offends you, you are probably hearing exactly what Jesus wants you to hear. 
It is absolutely crystal clear. You get it. You get what Jesus is saying. But if, if you're so familiar with the grace of God that you think it doesn't lead you to obey or it doesn't lead you to be part of his body, the church, if it doesn't lead you to desire to be baptized and come to the table and be spiritually nourished with food, the bread and the cup, if the grace of God isn't, isn't moving you toward people, if it's not moving you toward reaching out beyond just those that you've always known, if it's not opening up your life and your heart to people, then you might not be hearing what Jesus is talking about with grace. It, goes, it cuts both ways. And what does it look like what does it look like when the grace of God gets down into us and deep into our bones? What does it look like for us individually? What does it look like for us as a church for the grace of God to get deep down into us? It looks like we become gracious people that are continuing to receive the grace of God and therefore we're continuing to give the grace of God to others. That we're continuing to grow in our understanding of our need. And therefore we can understand others who are understanding their need. And we can live our lives by grace. Run our families by grace. Fulfill our responsibilities at work by grace. Be students by the grace of God. It means that we are becoming a gracious people. All right, second truth. Life with Jesus means Jesus knows everything about us. Here's the third one. Life with Jesus means that we want to be mastered by one thing. That we want to be mastered by one thing. Let's work through chapters 12 through 21. What was Jesus thinking about before he died? What is it that Jesus really, really wanted for us? In the last few hours of his life, what was on his mind? What did he want? Well, chapter 13, it tells you he wants to serve you. And I ask you then, I'll ask you again, how is Jesus serving you? Where do you need Jesus? Where is it that you need Jesus in your life? Where do you need him to serve you and wash you and cleanse you? Where is, where, where? And not only is Jesus thinking about that, when you move into chapter 14, well, we find out the next thing that was on Jesus' mind is that he was interested in giving us gifts, two in particular. He's going to prepare us a home, and he's giving us the Holy Spirit. Chapter 15, what's on Jesus' mind right before he dies? Last few hours of his life? He wants us to know that he'll change us as we abide with him and realize that all that we have comes from him. 17, what does Jesus want for you and for me? He prays for you. Do you ever think about that? That literally every day Jesus is praying for you and for me? Praying that you would grow, praying that you would love, praying that you would long to be with him. Life with Jesus means we want to be mastered by one thing. 
The crucifixion. Remember, think about that through the lens of this cup that Jesus drinks. Remember that? This is the cup of wrath. We're far more hostile to God than we like to admit. And when Jesus went to the cross, he actually was going to soak up the wrath of God that we have caused, that we have brought on because of our rebellion. And Jesus drank that cup all the way down. He absorbed all the wrath of God for you and me so that now when God looks at you and me, any who put their trust in Christ says paid in full, forgiven, righteous. Jesus says it's finished. I've done it all. The resurrection reminds us that Jesus changes us over a lifetime of a sincere, honest, genuine, truthful relationship. Jesus doesn't change us by any type of magical formula. It's our lifelong walk with him. And that brings us right down to that we want to be mastered by one thing. How in the world do you get that? Well, I wanted to work through 13 through 17 and 18 and 19 and 20 and 21 because it's so easy for us to forget that we, that we need and want to be mastered by one thing. Let me tell you why. Because I realize it can, this, this can just sound like data dump and you can just think, man, you talked about so much today, I didn't hear a single thing you said, too many bullet points, not enough application. I, trust me, I work through that all week and have those fears every single week. When we say we want to be mastered by one thing, it is so counterintuitive to say that. Because we all live in our in part we are all living in a culture that thinks that life is built upon mastering mastering a few techniques and then we become an expert. That's what our culture is built on. And that has infiltrated the church and it's so sad and so damaging because our whole society is built around just master a few techniques and then you become the expert. You don't believe me? Think about this. I can go on YouTube and watch a 15-minute video on how to rebuild my kitchen. I can master a few techniques, get the right tools, and bam, I can be an expert. But if you know me and I tried that, wouldn't work. You can go online and self-diagnose your own medical problems, and then you can go into a doctor who's been to medical school, and you can tell him what the problem is. Doesn't work too well, right? We live in a culture that says if you master a few things, then you become an expert. Even in my line of work, you can go online. You can, let me tell you what, here's my, you can do my job. You can get ordained in 60 minutes if you want to. You can go online and you can get ordained and you can become a pastor. You can do it. This is the culture that we live in. Do you realize how many books are out there about blank for dummies? You know, investing for dummies, parenting for dummies. This is the culture in which we live. Master a few techniques and then you become an expert. J JP and I were talking about this week and he made this, he made this statement. I thought it was brilliant. He said, the chief end of mankind, you get the question there in the shorter catechism what is man chief's what is man's chief end what is our highest purpose in our culture the answer to that is this 
Become an expert through competency. That's the message of our culture. Here's our chief end. Become an expert through our competency. You see, the problem is, is that if we try to live our lives mastering a few techniques, learning a few tricks here and there, and then considering ourselves an expert or becoming an expert, the problem is, is that there are always going to be disruptions in life. You know, the things that are unexpected that happen, things that happen to your children, things that happen to your friends, things that happen to you, things that happen at work, things that happen in your career, things that happen to your house, things that happen to your family, on and on. There are all kinds of disruptions that occur in our lives. And even if we try to live our lives based upon developing a few skills and and mastering a few techniques and then considering ourselves an expert, the problem is, is that there are disruptions that go on all the time. And if you have lived your life without any disruptions, I say this in love, just get ready. They're going to happen. And when disruptions happen in our lives, it basically leaves us with four options of response. The first one, and you may notice this in your own life, I notice it in mine. When a disruption happens and I'm trying to live my life basically living as if, hey, if I just master these couple things, I'll be an expert, and here's a disruption, here's the first option, ignore it. You ever had that happen in your life? Some disruption happens that you're not expecting, work, home, children, family, house, career, whatever it is, and you just ignore it, just sweep it under the rug. You just don't want to deal with it. You can take that approach, but it just means you're going to continue to try to master some more techniques, or maybe time will get you out of it, but it never does. It's always there. And if it's not that you want to try to ignore it, then here's another one. This oftentimes can happen as well, despair. Disruption happens in your life, and you just think, you know what? I'm just going to go down in the dumps. God's angry with me. I must have done something wrong. But then you're still thinking, you know, if I can just do the right thing, then I can get out of this. Here's a third option. Just white knuckle your way through life. You ever been there? Things get really hard, but you think to yourself, you know what? I'm just going to work harder. I'm just going to be more efficient, more productive. And you just try to white knuckle your way through life. The disruptions come, but you think, you know, I just need to man up. I I just need to convince myself that I can be stronger than this disruption. No matter what it reveals about me, no matter what it reveals about anything that's going on, I can just be stronger and better. That doesn't work either. Here's the fourth one. Get into Jesus. If you're trying to live your life based upon mastering a few things and becoming an expert and a disruption happens, instead of ignoring, instead of going into despair, and instead of trying to white-knuckle your way through it, let's encourage each other to get into Jesus. So when the disruption happens, we can face that disruption honestly and sincerely because disruptions are brought into our lives by God to help us get out of ourselves and into the Lord Jesus, and to see who we are in light of what God says. Disruptions are ways that God continues to communicate to us, you're not in control. You're not in control. God says, I am. And the worst thing that can happen for us 
is when disruptions come into our lives, we don't crash. That's the worst thing that could happen. Because the disruptions come into our lives and we just white knuckle our way through it, then when the next one comes, we think we can do it again and do it again and do it again. Before you know it, we're not even a human being anymore. We're just a machine that thinks that we can control everything and outmaneuver whatever comes along. And God gets so far away from our hearts. Well, that brings us back to 2031. Here's where we'll end. You remember this? We've said it over and over, that you would have life in his name. You ever thought about what does it mean that we would have life in Jesus' name? What does it mean to have life in someone's name? Well, let me mention a couple other names for you, and let's try to work this out together as we close. If I were to mention to you these names, uh, Marie, Marie Kondo. Everybody, anyone, any, of you, any of you ever heard of her? I got a few nods. How about Nick Saban? That name sound familiar to you? How about Joanna Gaines? How about that? You know, Mary Kondo is, is that lady from Japan, I think, who helps people organize their home. She basically goes through your drawers and teaches you how to fold things and helps you look at your stuff and say, say something to the effect of, hey, does this bring you joy? And if it doesn't, get rid of it. Does this make you happy? If it doesn't, get rid of it. Oh, we've been through Marie Kondo at our house. What about Joanna Gaines? Remember her? She's that lady that's blown up all over who is just great at redoing your home and making it into what you hoped it could be. Organizing, and not only organizing, but like the totality of your house, making it what you want. And she has a great relationship with her husband, so it's fun to watch. Nick Saban, coach, leader, winner, successful. See, you associate things with those names. Because you might think to yourself, you know, I wish my house was organized, or I wish my house had this renovation to it. Or you might think, you know, I wish I was a better leader like this guy. I wish I was a winner like him. I wish I was successful like him. Well, let me give you one more name, and I don't expect you to know this one at all, but it means something to me. Many of you know that my dad had a heart transplant more than 12 years ago. And right before my dad had the transplant surgery, the family was told that the doctor that was going to work on my dad was named Dr. Stewart. I don't know why the, the, the Columbia told us that, but they did. And the reason why Dr. Stewart operated on my dad is because of the complexity of my dad's situation. And Dr. Stewart had operated on President Clinton. Do you know what it was like for me to hear that this particular doctor was going to oversee the transplant? My dad's transplant? Like I knew that other people trusted this man. I knew that his skill set was incredibly, he was incredibly gifted, incredibly competent. I knew that I could trust this man in the heat of the moment to make life-changing decisions regarding my dad. I knew that there was something in his name. Does that make sense? There's something in his name that allows me as a son who loves his dad to trust this man, to think my dad might be okay because this particular doctor was operating, or this particular person is helping me organize my home and they know how to do it. 
There's something about there's power in that name. And I want you to understand that when we've looked at this whole book together, there's something that's far more important than someone helping us get organized, than someone helping us refurbish our homes, than someone who's a great leader or a winner like Nick Saban. There's someone that's even more significant than the surgeon that operated on my dad. His name is Jesus. And whatever glimpses we get into having power and hearing someone's name, whatever glimpses we get into that with all these other people and all these other names, it pales in comparison to Jesus. Because, beloved, at the end of the day, this is what is true. Jesus is king, and we have life in him. And that's what brings us to the table. You know how we do this. So if you would, look around and uh, move books around, purses, whatever it is. So as people come forward, they won't trip as they're either coming to the table or going back to their seats. Um, so look around and make sure things are pushed around if you would. You know that this table is for those who follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Those that belong to his people, the church. So if you're here this morning and you have not entrusted your life to the Lord Jesus, we would ask that you do not partake of the bread and the cup this morning, but we do want you to take Christ. We do want you to give your life to him. We do want you to hear the message, and if you come here broken and knowing you're not enough, thinking that, no, that God could never love me, we want you to hear, yes, he can, and he does. And if you're here this morning and you are a recovering, self-righteous Pharisee who has a tendency to think that everything in your life is dependent on you and the grace of God is offensive to you but you're learning that sometimes being offended at God's grace is good and progress, this table's for you too. We want you to hear that the grace of God is enough. So if you're planning on partaking this morning, beloved, come to the table, grab the bread, take a cup, go back to your seat and hold and we'll take together. But if you're here and you're not partaking this morning, you can either stay in your seat or you can come forward and just pass by the elements. Whatever, whatever will help you to take seriously the offer of Christ for you and what he has done. On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And as he was with his disciples, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, broken for you. Take and eat. And after he had given thanks, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. It is shed for the forgiveness of your sins. Drink from it, all of you. For as often as you eat bread and drink the cup, you proclaim my death until I return. And I'm coming back. And one day I'll eat this with you anew. And I will be your pastor forever and ever, Jesus says. That's what Revelation 7 tells us. He will be our shepherd forever and ever and ever. And we will dwell with his people forever. Isn't that exciting? Forgiveness, life, and eternity. I'm going to ask those that are helping this morning if they would come forward. And I'm going to pray. And then if you would, just give us a couple seconds to, uh, you know, get the cup and the bread together on each side of the table, and then please come forward and let's eat.
We also have our allergen-free bread, so if you have any allergies, please feel free to take this. Or if you don't want to eat off the common loaf, whichever works for you. Let's pray, and then after I finish, just come on forward. Sound good? Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we thank you that in these next moments, as we grab the bread, take the cup, as we eat and drink together, that you are causing us to have communion with the risen Christ. Holy Spirit, increase our faith. Make us to cling to Christ. Make us to know in new ways of his commitment to us. Make us desire to be mastered by that one thing, by Jesus. We pray this, Father, because we are learning more and more of your unconditional love for us. We pray this, Jesus, because without you, we have nothing. So work in us, again, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Now the God of peace that raised Jesus from the dead, because of the blood of Christ, he is eternally bound to you. And through the blood of Christ, God is equipping you with every good thing that you need to do his will. It's even better. He's working in you what's pleasing in his sight. So that one day, all glory will redound to him forever and ever. Amen. Go in peace.